Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with legendary jazz pianist Larry Vukovic. This passionate and evolved artist was born in Montenegro on December 8th, 1936, in the former Yugoslavia. He lived through, witnessed, and experienced firsthand hardships and dangers of World War II. But it was in 1951, when he was 14, that his family was granted political asylum in the United States, arriving in San Francisco at the height of a very flourishing jazz scene. This would captivate his mind and future, and that would lead to a storied career spanning six decades performing with numerous jazz masters in various eras with the likes of Cab Calloway, Red Norvo, Dexter Gordon, John Hendricks, Mel Torme, Philly Joe Jones, Joe Williams, Bobby Hutcherson, Charlie Hayden, and that list just goes on and on. Back in 2019, Larry received a Lifetime Achievement Award from his former country of Yugoslavia, and these days he is one of the most well-respected in the business. He is still going strong playing concerts, releasing recordings, touring, and playing at major festivals. At 87 years young, he happily lives in Northern California with his wife, who is a vocalist and percussionist, a journalist, and media relations professional. We dig in, we get into it, enjoy this interview. Hey, Joel. Hey, Larry, we good to go? Everything is cool. Well, hey, Larry, thank you for taking a minute out for the show today. I appreciate it. Man, I appreciate you doing it. And, you know, today I came to San Francisco, Frisco in 51. There was so much jazz exposure. It kept building till about mid-60s until rock and roll came. But there was so much jazz exposure everywhere. Main, I mean, major stations, NBC, CBS, uh, ABC. Today, this is so rare. So that's why it's so much appreciated, man. Uh, jazz has been taking over, has been taken over by whatever you call the business people pushing the other stuff. So... More, jazz is not easy today as the, as it was. That's why I appreciate your call. Yeah, absolutely. No, and, and from where I come from, I think the beauty of this art form that people may not realize are those like you that are protecting this art form, that are putting the stories out there, that are keeping this alive, and you're just lighting that um, flashlight for all of the younger people out there they're going to keep this art form moving forward. So I, I definitely appreciate your time and your stories. And I want to begin at the very top and just kind of ask you what's been going on lately. What's going on with live shows, any recordings, anything that's going on in your world right now? I hope to do another live recording. The latest issue I had, I believe I sent you the remastering of Street Scene, correct? Yes, 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 which and I have played... I played like crazy. I love it. Uh, it's got a good variety. I'm happy to say that. Some great cats. So I have another one, but I won't mention the title because it's kind of, uh, I, I don't want to expose it, but that. But the live performances after the pandemic, they've been coming back little by little. You know, before the pandemic, I had, concert almost every week things were going strong now maybe two times a month you know it's just a pandemic messed up the economy people lost work lost homes so it's happening little by little like in the bay area uh there's a wonderful piano store piedmont piano 
in Oakland where they have good resident musicians and people from out of town, all names. And then Yoshi's, which was at one time, it's, it's in Jack London Square, Oakland, which was one time basically only a jazz club. But to survive, they have to have a mix of styles. So I'm doing something unusual that nobody is doing in the Bay Area. On December 27th, I'm presenting Dexter Gordon's Centennial Celebration. This is Dexter Gordon's 100th birthday in this year, 23. Wow. And then wow. I stream. I like to tell your audience, if they go to my website, LarryVukovic.com, on the home page, they will find a streaming performance where I do solo piano this Saturday. There are different themes. I call this one odds and ends, picking different material and telling stories from my experiences that I have. So uh, it's a solo piano, and that's what I have Saturday. Right on. So let's go back to the beginning of your life here. Um, you were born in Montenegro. Actually, you were born on my my son, uh, Miles, named after Mr. Miles Davis. He was born on the 8th of December as well. So Wow. Um, yeah. Yeah. So take me back to the beginnings of your life and how music and more specifically jazz became your focus. I was born in 36 and uh, my parents had a very successful business. My father and his brothers, they have an olive oil factory uh, that also had toothpaste, glycerin, uh, you know, fine uh, fragrances. They were doing really well. But, you know, they were wealthy, but unlike some wealthy people, they always helped a lot of people. So they had a, a baby grand piano in the living room. My mother played, my brother played. And the first music I remember hearing is a, on a phonograph recording of uh, Serbian ethnic music is very similar to Bulgarian, Romanian. It's influenced by Gypsy Roma and, of course, Turkish Arabic. Turk Turks occupied the peninsula for several centuries, but they left a great musical influence. So when I heard those minor scales like the blues, man, Minor third, flat five, minor seventh. It's a different flavor, but it's soulful. So that hit it, you know. And I started classical music, and then all of a sudden, like the World War One started in '41, and then big band, major stations, and armed forces. When I heard big band jazz, I said, "This is it." You, I just knew. This was for me. So we found the music of In the Mood at Glenn Miller. It was written by black composers. So when I heard those harmonies, this was totally fresh. So to make it short, I started, you know, picking out on a piano a little bit. But it wasn't until 51. My father was an American citizen, lived in the States. 
they allowed us to leave. And when I came to San Francisco, that changed the whole thing. In 51, <clears throat> by 52, 53, on Market Street and Van Ness, there was a uh, uh, ballroom, El Patio. The white bands played there, Woody Herman, Les Brown, Harry James with Buddy Rich, and standing in front of the bed. It's exciting. Down on Market Street, there was Paramount Theater. Uh, just one second, Joe. Hey, Sana, can you go to the other room? Because I hear you talking. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I walk on Market Street. I go into Paramount, and in those days, they still had a movie and a band. There is a black band in tuxedos and a drummer, two bass drums. Well, Duke Ellington with Louis Belson. You know, wow, I don't know what it is. just sounds great. And then a little later, I go to the same theater, and the black band with uh, airplanes flying on a screen. What is that? Lionel Hampton flying home. And then I hear Count Basie, the Blackhawk Club, has Oscar Peterson Trio, MJQ, Dizzy, Jazz Workshop. So that's how I got into it. And then one more. I met Vince Guraldi, who, who was a swinging jazz pianist, played good salsa. And he, I became his only student. And at home, he would play Arteta, Bud Powell. So that's how he started, you know. So what was it like to be around Vince? What was that? I mean, you know, you've been around a lot of heavy cats. What, what was that like? What did you pick up? What I picked up was the, the music, uh, the real music. I mean, there are great white players. We know that, you know. There's no questions. But the music originally is black. It's from, it's from New Orleans. You know, and that's where it started. And New Orleans always exposed strong beat. Like, for example, Tin Roof Blues by Louis Armstrong. You can play it. Da, 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 da. No, those guys play it. Bop, ba, da, 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 do, dee, do, bop. You know, heavy beat, you know. And then the beat got more subtle, but it was still strong. Bird, Lester Young, Basie, you know. So the greatest white players learned from black players. Did you know that Bill Evans was a boogie-woogie champ in a state of Jersey? Huh? No. When he was a teenager, he was a boogie-woogie champ, man. And uh, on the on the album Blues and the Abstract Truth, Bill Evans plays some good phrasing and good rhythm. And you know he he could have played even more bluesier, but he brought the music up to date. But he had a good feeling. And then you have players like Sal Nistico, Italian. I mean, <laughs> one time I'm driving with John Hendricks. 
And Henry Grimes, you know, Middle West or back East. And Woody Herman was on with Sal Mystico blowing up a storm. They thought it was Gene Ammons, you know. So anyway, I mean, when I have my classes, I tell people you learn from the source. If you go listen to Debussy or Ravel, you listen to them. If you listen to jazz, you listen to the real players. Lester Young, Bird, Dizzy. You know, Stan Getz' main influence was Lester Young. That's where he got that lighter sound, you know, Hmm. and still feeling, you know. So anyway, that's how it was. When I started listening to that, the more I learned, the more I came closer to the real players. You know. So when you did finally come to San Francisco and came to America, what was one of the first live jazz shows you saw that blew you away? It was Harry James with Buddy Rich. Wow. And that that was and it was swinging band, you know, and then like I said I heard Duke Ellington and Lionel Hampton and at the at the Blackhawk I heard the original modern jazz quartet with Kenny Clark, you know, and and, and then Dizzy, so all those bands I heard first, you know, and then Cal Jader had a great band like uh, Vince Guraldi, Al McKibben, Mongo Santa Maria, Willie Bobo, the real deal, man, so lack yeah. of influence was also strong on me. So when how how did you start? What was what was the kind of the beginning of your career? Since there was such a cauldron of jazz, did you jump right in? Did things start kind of in warp speed, or how did everything begin for you? Well, I started playing in high school. We had a great teacher, Irvin Gordon, and the first high school jazz concert was held where I went at Lincoln. There were kids, but we were tuned in and. I have a CD of this. I guess for teenagers, we played pretty good, you know. So, and then I started, I brew more. The great Lester Young disciple, disciple was living in San Francisco. So I was fortunate to start playing with him and, you know, hearing the real deal, you know, like Prez. And then John Handy was helping us. And uh, he... uh was the real deal, too. And little by little, you know, and then uh, I would play for dances, but we would all try to play jazz, you know, and that. And then in the uh, early 60s, actually, I, I, I went to San Francisco State, and John Handy was fortunate to be there he came back from New York after working with Mingus. And for us, let's look what he did. One weekend, he brings in Rasan Roland Kirk to jam. Next weekend, he brings in, or week after or two, he brings Milt Jackson. And then he would bring uh, 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 Willie Bobo and uh, uh, drums and... Uh, excuse me, uh, I think the bass player might have been Larry Gales, and 
Next time it would break, I would go pick up Mickey Roker on drums and Bob Cradshaw. I, I, to play with those people, man, you know, so... And then I meet Mel Torme, I worked with him, and then John Hendricks, and then I go to Europe in 63. The Danish pianist takes a vacation. And, and who does he hire? He could have hired any Danish He hires me, two weeks with Dexter Gordon. So all that, kept, he kept building little by little. So when you were around these cats, I, that had to be the ultimate master class. Were they aware of, of what they were doing? I mean, because right now, all of these players that you've mentioned are icons in the world of jazz. But were they just playing the music? Were they aware that they were, you know, put, putting something out there that was going to be this timeless and iconic? I, I have a feeling they were because uh, they were getting a lot of uh, credit and press by then. Like, for example, I'll give you an example. Dexter Gordon was basically the first uh, major one. Also, the other L.A. player was and Dexter were first to transfer Bird style to tenor. I have to think of his name. Uh, let me ask my wife. Hey, Sana, remember the saxophone player that came to hear you sing from L.A.? Uh, I try to think of his name. Well-known. Yeah, a well-known saxophone. Uh, it'll come up. Anyway, so Dexter transfers Bird alto style to tenor, and when Train and Jimmy Heath, who played alto, heard, they immediately switched. So when I played with Dexter in Copenhagen, uh, okay, when Dexter mentioned Train, and Sonny Rollins, he called them my sons, you know, because they were influenced by his playing, you know, beautiful bebop lines with a big sound, strong phrasing, you know. And uh, so, anyway, I think Dexter already knew that he influenced those players. Yeah. So... You you were around. You've been around a lot of people, and you undoubtedly learned from them. Who was one that you learned the most from? Without like being in a situation where they sat you down in some educational way, but just watching them, being around them. Who did you learn the most from? Well, I love. I heard Bud Powell later, but first I heard Red Garland uh, on records, you know, and then he would come at a jazz workshop in the early 60s. And I didn't know him. I walk I walk up to him on a break. I said, Red, how do you voice your, you know, block chord? He doesn't know me. He spells it out. He said left hand, E flat, F sharp, A and D, right hand, F, B, D, and F octave. And I came home, I hit it, oh, man. So I would listen to him. He, you know, he played Bud Powell style lines, but with his old phrasing, you know. So Red was a strong influence, you know. I would watch him, and and then uh, 
Oh, yeah. My wife is just handing me Teddy Edwards, <laughs> the NBA okay. player okay. who played bebop. <laughs> so, anyway, I would also watch Vince Guaraldi. And then uh, when Miles later came with Winton Kelly, he was a swinging player, and I would be at the Blackhawk, you know, uh, absorbing the sound. And then in 63, before I went to Copenhagen, my friend and I were in Paris. We would go to Blue Note. I walk in a Blue Note, and there is Bud Powell playing Dance of the Infidels a classic bebop tune. And he's phrasing in a bebop way where the notes are, they sound like a horn and with a uh, kind of very elastic accents. You know, bebop, swig music was wonderful, very strong, but he didn't have the looseness he's phrasing, in phrasing as bebop. You know, it was uh, a little more rigid, but swung. So, the you know, and I would listen to Charlie Parker. One of my favorite records was done in Toronto at, Mas at Massey Hall, the great quintet, you know? Yeah. Great play. You know, there's so many classic records you can learn from, you know? You know, and... and, and that, oh, go ahead. Yeah, no, 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 no. I was just... I was just curious real quick. I just wanted to hop in and ask you, you know, you you watched the birth and development of something like bebop and even hard bop and these different yeah. levels of innovation. Do you see that jazz is going to do that again? Do you do you feel like there's that evolutionary track that you've watched your whole life in jazz continuing into today? Well, fortunately, there are young players today who are, so tuned in, you know, they are playing the new music, but some of them are very authentically, you know, like when you're playing piano in classical field, you want to play Mozart, Beethoven, then you want to be able to play some Debussy, Ravel, maybe Bartok, and whatever. You know, cover, you know, so you know what the piano repertoire is about. Same thing in jazz, these young players are playing the new music, uh, more contemporary harmony and phrasing, but also they're playing bird like the, one of the hottest guitarists in Bay Area ever to come out. He works with me. His name is Sky Lyons. And when I first heard him, I said, wow, this guy's an old man, early 20s, playing bebop. But, but then he is doing all kinds of other things, too, you know. So they are. So so hopefully they will carry on the music. And the the, the drag is economically, uh, most money and exposure is done by what they call a rock star. I don't want to hear the word rock star. Most of them can't play shit, excuse me. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that on radio. No, 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 you're good. No, no, you're good. You, you, you're you know, so anyway, most of them, there are some, you know, but I mean, they glorify them. Uh, you know, the anchors on TV, uh, oh, did you hear that rock star? Come on, man. They they cannot play the sophisticated music or even the authentic blues, you know. Some of them come close. You know, the what does for them, like a, a, a great filmmaker in the 50s, 
said something that applies to music. He said, you see, the films with quality that deal with uh, psychological issues, people's lives and everything with depth, slowly are becoming moving to spectacles. They started, you know, panorama screen and that, you know, more exciting stuff, which was still okay. Today, spectacles, loud amplifiers, video things, and people think that's art. You know, that's taking their attention, you know. So, and in 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 in, in rock music, spectacles are loud amplifiers and flashing lights in the movies, explosions and all that. Well, there you go, you know? Yeah, yeah. There you go. Yeah. So, but even though the real music is not exposed as it should be, it'll never go away. It'll never die because when something is real, it becomes, how can you say, embodied in people's souls and bodies, man. It's so yeah. strong that you can't kill it, man. Absolutely. Well, you've been at this for decades and decades. You clearly love it, and you've always evolved. What's been your key to longevity? What has been your key to staying relevant and, and just loving this art form that you've created for so long? Well, I John Hendricks was a historian and a lecturer for, from a bandstand like uh, Art Blakey. You know, one thing I learned from him, all the gigs that I have, I play some original music, but some young cats that are not quite tuned in play only their tunes, and some of their tunes are okay. A lot of their tunes are exercises. What I learned from John, you have to pay back. If it wasn't for the masters, you wouldn't be there. So, so at different gigs, we pay back by playing some classics and telling the people where it came from. You know, you have to honor the masters because you can play a tune by train, you can play a tune by Charlie Parker or Lester Young. You know, I have a nice arrangement on jumping with Symphony Sid, you know, doing some uh, lines, uh, original lines uh, based on, on his language. And, and Lester Young, I like to tell people, was original in the jazz vocabulary. Like, uh, if you like to do something, it would say you have eyes to do it. If he wanted a bass solo, he would turn to the bass player and say, put me in the basement. Mm. <laughs> and then he was one time in a club in the back. He didn't want to be noticed. He just wanted to relax. And somebody said, hey, Prez is here. Let's get him to play. And this is what he said. I don't dig big dug while I'm digging. <laughs> anyway, so you have to pay back the masters, man. You know, I, I I always play something from Red Garland if I can, you know, and Bud Powell and, and, and McCoy Tyner played great. And then Chick Corea early on 
could play that music as he played with uh, Lou Mitchell. He really could phrase, really great. And then later, Chick Corea, some nice originals, you know, and, and McCoy Tyner in the early days. He later, he all played good, but there was too much heavy bombardment of the piano. In the early days, McCoy played some beautiful lines with the great piano touch with his trios, you know. Oh, there's so much to cover, man. We can talk all day. Yeah, for sure. Well, you know, I'm curious. In 2019, you got a lifetime achievement award. What 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 do these awards mean to you when you get recognized for the, the music that you put out there and this dedication you have to the art form? What does it mean to you? Well, it means that I, I thank you, God. Thanks, Almighty. I'm appreciated for being there for paying back to the music. And one thing I we didn't mention, uh, the Serbian trumpet player, Dusko Gojkovic, was the first in Europe to take that ethnic music, which I heard, and combine it with jazz, his album, Swinging Macedonia. When I came back in 70, little by little, I'm hearing by late 70s, I start to put that music together. In 1980, I have that. Did you ever hear or play anything from my album Blue Balkan with Bobby Hutcherson? Yes, absolutely. A- anyway, so some of that comes to me to my ears. I put some tunes together, and the title Blue Balkan has Coltrane elements, modal. Coltrane listened to the music from India, and so I put that together. So in America, I'm known as the first to put together ethnic Balkan with jazz. So the Achievement Award covered the fact that I'm the only guy from the old country who has played with so many greats, you know, you know, plus did what I just mentioned. So I'm just trying to keep going and uh, trying to, to cover a lot of ground, you know. Diversity, I, I love Latin music, you know, because it's from Africa and bebop, Cuba and everything, you know, wonderful stuff. Well, and I think that's the thing, too, that you had mentioned at the head of this is that, you know, it's it's disheartening to see because jazz was the popular music at, at one time. That was all that was it on the was. radio. That's that what, was the music, man. Yeah. Do you ever see, I was hoping over the pandemic there would be a revival of this this art form that, that has been so pure and so good like jazz. Do you ever think we're going to get back to any level of that point in our human history? Not that I can see according to the main media. They're business people. They want to push and they they want to influence the young people with sales, you know, uh, for what they want to sell, when young people come by chance or however and hear us playing, they said, "I never heard this before." What it, you know? So you know how it could come <clears throat> if you had some jazz billionaires. I don't know much about Elon Musk, but let's say with all the money that he say, has, and he said, or anybody buys bunch of radio stations, starts playing it. During uh, Ken Burns, during that time, jazz sales went up because of the exposure of the music heard. So 
So somebody, if he bought a bunch of radio stations and bunch of concert halls and started flooding the market, then it would happen. It's money, man. Yeah, I that's agree. What is, I that's what agree. it would happen, man. Yeah. You know? Well, you know, the one... Yeah. You know, the one thing, too, I think that we realized over this pandemic is how important jazz is to be seen live. It's such a communal environment. How 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 good did it feel to come back to the stage after that? And how essential do you feel jazz is given to people live? Well, it's uplifting. In other words, what you believe it was strengthened by the example. In other words, the music will never go away because it's it's for real. It's timeless. There are certain things in universe that are timeless, like certain food recipes. You know, you keep repeating, they're timeless. And also uh, other universal elements that are timeless. You know, you got to have air, water, and certain things. So jazz is timeless. You know, some of the compositions and the bands that played, you know, like my favorite bands were earlier Miles bands. You know, the later on, they were good. Not the same. And we got into rock. That was a little innovative. But compared to the real stuff, not the same. Like, have you heard of the drummer Charlie Rice from Philly? He's on Chet Baker's records, mid-60s. Baby Breeze or something. You know, good drummer. He, Miles mentions him in his book, in his life, Charlie was a tailor to make a living, but he played, you know, he was work. he worked with me. He would confront Miles. He wasn't intimidated. Hey, Miles, why do you play that stuff? S-H-I-T for bad. He knew what, and Miles said, well, you know, money, you manage money and people like it. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. it's <laughs> Miles, money, yeah. money. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think too, I mean, the popular perception and obviously you would know better, is that Miles was just trying to evolve and go to different places. Was that also yeah. kind of a part? He did. He he did the, yeah, he wanted to be refreshing and all that, but I wish he did it with a little better quality for me. You know, yeah. and some combined with rock or Afro rhythms, it's really hip. You know, there's no question what he was doing. The idea is good, you know. Yeah. You know, the one thing I keep thinking about your history is that, you know, sometimes I'll interview musicians that are in far, far regions of, you know, way away from America. The power of this music that's gone global and brought you here to do this, does that ever does that ever blow you away sometimes to think how global and how present this music is? And how you it just said, keeps getting you, spread. You said the right thing, man. One time, I don't remember this cat's name, Japanese player, uh, playing with Milt. Man, this cat sounds so American. You know, like when you speak a language without an accent, you know, then yeah. you're really tuned in. And this cat sounded so American. He played American jazz right there, far away in Japan. And that 
another guy in another place of the world playing the real stuff. Yeah, so it's uplifting. This is just like you said, it's it's a global language, man. And it would have been even better if it wasn't kind of blocked up by the business people promoting so much rock and taking the exposure from the radio. Today, our radio station, KCSM, in, in San Francisco Bay Area, is, has to barely survive with donations and stuff, you know? Oh, it's you sad, know, man. You know, in Europe, they all funded all the radio stations that yeah. they... Americans in the 60s, that was a great era. They made a living playing at radio big band stations, man. They're funded by their countries. Who funds it here? Hardly. That's the thing that's so tough about jazz here is that, yeah, you don't get it funded. We don't have a full-time station here in Kansas City. I don't know that we ever have. And KCSM is my favorite station. I listen to that all the time. I've tuned in for years. And what they're doing is a template. It's stellar. Uh, The music, the variety, the hosts, it's it's such a good thing that I wish could be replicated um, everywhere. You know, at the end of the day, I think the one thing is that jazz, the jazz community, I think, is protected in a way, even though there's not the, the large amounts of money that other musics have. I think there's a love that you have, elder statesmen have, all of you cats are protecting this. And I think that's the thing to me that's so endearing about this art form, is that above and beyond anything else, like you said, if it's real, you're going to feel it. And that's the way this music is. Well, thank you. That's a great statement. And as you feel, we both feel this is timeless. Imagine music like jazz in America. You have all these ethnic different groups, and it's taking in all these elements from the world and making it into jazz, you know? And uh, uh, it's it's uh, timeless, you know, like, I, you know, interesting to hear different masters like uh, Horowitz great pianist and uh, Rocky Manyanov, they followed Arteta wherever he went. And I thought I didn't know that Arturo Toscanini was conservative because he was a tough guy to deal with on the bandstand, I understand, as a conductor. But one time he said, I'm late an hour here at Carnegie Hall. Excuse me, I was in Harlem listening to great jazz. And he said... His son-in-law was Horowitz, Vladimir Horowitz, married to his daughter. He said, if Arteta was white, then my son-in-law wouldn't be the greatest pianist in the world. I mean, power of the music, man. Yeah, no, I get it. So after all of the recordings, all of the shows, all of the decades that you've been in this art form, what do you hope that everybody remembers you for? When your name comes up on the radio when your sounds come into people's ears, what do you hope they remember about you? Well, I hope to remember as somebody who played the music going to the heart of the music, the feeling. Horace Parland, one of my favorite pianists who was paralyzed uh, 
played such strong music, great rhythm, wonderful harmony. The feeling was there. There are cats all over the piano, technically and also harmonically knowledgeable, but somehow it lacks the warmth, man. The, this music is about a feeling to lift your spirit. That's what it's about, any music. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Charlie so Parker the end- playing the blues, playing hip bebop, it all comes from the same source. Yeah, for sure. So at the end of the day, Larry, everyone has a perception of you. Your family, your friends, your fans, but ultimately you're in control of your life. What's your perception of you? Who do you think you are? Well, I would, I'm 87. I'm trying to get better all the time. I'm trying to edit myself. You know, in other words, try to make the lines as lyrical and meaningful. One of the most lyrical pianists in the whole history is Tommy Flanagan. The beautiful lines. So, you know, I'm trying to, no matter how long I'm here, I'm trying to get better to play the music that will hopefully move people, you know, and lift their spirits. Yeah, man. Yeah, and you're doing that. So if anyone out there wants to learn about, see you live, any live shows, anything about you, where's the best place to go? Uh, To my uh, uh, website, I have a wonderful designer from Chicago, great designs www.larryvukovic.com He has a schedule page, the home page, and then it has different areas, you know, my history, Keystone Corner, when I was there in Europe, New York page. So, but it does have the schedule. For example, this Saturday I have a streaming um I'm going to do a tune from a Jack Webb movie, Pete Kelly's Blues, written by Warner Brothers composer Ray Heindorf, who recorded Art Tatum at his home, and it came out as Art Tatum, 20th Century Piano. I'm going to play Pete Kelly's Blues, beautiful tune. Cal Jader does a great version and does Ella. So my website, tell them what's happening at that Yoshi's, whoever is in the area, listen to the Dexter tribute. I have great tenor player from New York, Steve Heckman, and Craig Handy, who goes back and forth. So we're going to do Dexter's originals. And Jamie Davis, the wonderful vocalist with the Basie band, is going to sing the Dexter ballads. You've changed... Laura, things like that. So my website, I guess. Wonderful. Larry, thank you so much for the music. Thank you for being so open with your story. I appreciate your time today. Best of luck with everything. And since you're Italian, I'll tell you molto grazie, signore di Mino. And (laughs) and don't forget, I eat raw garlic. That helps, man. Yes, it does. It keeps the vampires away. There you go. Thanks, Thanks a lot, Joe. 
Thanks for listening and tuning in to another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players and minds and legends in Yugoslavia, San Francisco, Kansas City, and spots all over the globe, giving fans all that jazz. Thanks to Larry for everything. It was wonderful to delve into the story, history, and passion of this art form. If you want to hear more Neon Jazz interviews, you can find us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Subscribe to us at YouTube, and for everything Neon Jazz, go to the neonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends. Jazz.